Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. If you want to get an edge over Vegas, download BetQL, the app you need to get an advantage this season. Discover value bets, line movement, and find out what bets the public backs with BetQL. The best part, BetQL is free to download from your mobile device. Head to betql.co and use promo code CAPSPACE to get a three-day trial. Give yourself an advantage over Vegas and download BetQL. That's betql.co and promo code CAPSPACE. Big show today. Going to bring in Derek Bodner after this to talk Sixers. Markel Fultz, we pre-recorded that, actually got a lot of really interesting talk about Fultz, Embiid, Steph, Simmons, the long-term outlook for the franchise. Really always enjoy having Derek on. He's the best when it comes to the Sixers. Uh, but first, we got some news that is piled up, starting, Danny, with, an odd firing out of phoenix and what has become uh a an october tradition for the yeah. phoenix suns october surprises i guess they're really common in in phoenix and arizona and this is another head scratcher for a variety of reasons and actually there are parallels with the earl watson firing last year which is so robert sarver their owner fired ryan mcdonough their general manager about 15 months after giving him an extension and after he basically put together this year's team there are still some potential moves that could be made. I mean, we've been seeing murmurs that they've been going after point guards forever, but it goes along with this story. I mean, this has been something I've said numerous times on Dunkton. If you don't want somebody to run your team, once you've made that decision, don't have them run your team anymore. Like, I don't I don't understand what changed between yeah. now and whatever other point there was where it's happened. I mean, very little has happened with the Suns other than the Knight Chris trade in the last few months. And then after, after their flurry of activity in July, so what are they really doing here? They're also doing a disservice. I mean, think about the old adage of hire your GM and give your GM the authority to hire a coach. Well, it seemed like they did that because they gave their GM an extension a year before they hired their coach. But now Kokoshkov is going to coach his first NBA regular season game without a general manager. Yeah, and it has been reported by Woj that James Jones seems like the likely replacement. A number of McDonough loyalists were fired as well. Courtney Whitty, who came over from the Clippers in a personnel capacity. Uh, Pat Connolly as well, and I think a, a couple others whose names escape me at the moment. But uh, So they're very thin right now. I mean, not a time where you need a ton of scouting staff. I mean, you might be looking to claim guys off of waivers for a two-way or whatever, but they, they've got a pretty full roster in Phoenix right now. So that's not the end of the world but right i mean it really does make no sense to do it right now i mean what was the tipping point i mean some have speculated that it was the inability to acquire a starting point guard for this season you know there's talk they might be going after terry rosier or, or you know, some other logical trade candidates but you know boston i think wants a lot for rosier eh, 
maybe justifiably so maybe maybe he's a little bit uh overrated in terms of an asset these days but uh so he couldn't do that and then just that you know in preseason the team didn't look too good uh they clearly made these win now moves it, it also seems very clear that sarver uh and woge really unloaded on him in in this piece uh you know mcdonough's woge's guy and now we're, we're seeing this now that mcdonough is out uh you know i think a lot of these details that woge was kind of sitting on come out now after his guy gets fired um but sarver you know is kind of retired from his other businesses the last couple of years and, and certainly uh he, he's been very involved according to woge in basketball decision making and that's not to imply that woge is like you know making stuff up like woge's stuff is always good stuff it's just you know kind of when does it end up getting released it, it can be uh, an interesting question with him so it seems clear that all this yo-yoing back and forth not picking a direction some of the head scratching moves uh, signing Ariza, trying to win now uh, trading away that 2021 miami pick and number 16 to move up to number 10 after he'd already been uh selected uh, bridges i mean that, that there's just a, a lot of these moves which you, know, you don't know for sure that that was sarver but also really because they're so weird you think they probably are yeah, I, I mean, that's certainly an argument that can be made. I mean, the idea of, you know, not really following a draft pick board, that seems like something maybe more that an owner would do. And yeah, there was there were anecdotes in Woj's piece talking about Sarver having conversations with agents outside of the front office, kind of not not the same thing as what's happening with Glenn Taylor, but kind of a similar flavor of bad ownership there. Just, you know, not letting your personnel people do personnel things. And that makes it very hard. And it also like, I mean, there are a bunch of different angles of this, but one of them is it also makes it hard to get good people to work in your organization. And so, I mean, one of the most prominent general managing prospects out there is David Griffin, who did a really nice job in Cleveland overall. Well, David Griffin has plenty of experience with Robert Sarver and I I cannot speak to it. I have not talked to David Griffin about this, but I'm guessing he wouldn't be super interested in that position as desirable as GM jobs are just because there are so many things that come with it that are unnecessary headaches and make it harder to do your job well. Yeah. Now, certainly McDonough had his own problems. There is a rash of anti-McDonough sentiment and told you so's from various players when he was fired some of those players in fact uh who McDonough had paid or at least Sarver had uh so uh, you know not, not to say that McDonough w- was perfect here and, and it we talked about too part of your job as a GM is being able to manage the owner and being able to curb their worst impulses and now maybe Sarver wanted someone who wasn't going to do that uh and McDonough did last five years there perhaps because he was not quote-unquote standing up to Sarver maybe he would have just never had his contract renewed that would be uh you know getting to a second contract with Sarver is actually impressive and actually getting an extension before your contract is up is really impressive with Sarver uh but yeah i mean this is and, why and on that note mcdonough yeah. still has two more years on his contract so i mean the fact that yeah. sarver is willing to pay him not to be there anymore is surprising yeah no i mean i mean because you know you'll remember back in the steve kerr era they didn't want to give anybody extensions at the end of that great 2010 season and kerr ended up leaving because he and his staff like weren't taken care of uh, at that point uh and sarver is just like well why would i ever give someone an extension which you know i do think the oh my god no coach or gm can ever be a free agent thing is a little overblown um 
GM is probably more accurate of a criticism, or, or I'm sorry, not accurate of a criticism, but a, a better axiom that they you shouldn't have a lame duck GM because you know you, you run into that issue of just making short term moves to save your job. Um, but you know, Sarver uh, went probably too far in the extreme to the opposite there. And uh, I mean, this is why we ranked Robert Sarver among the worst owners in the league. I mean, even going back to the time with the Suns with luxury tax avoidance, trading away Lou Dang and Rajon Rondo and dumping Kurt Thomas with two first round picks, one of which became Serge Ibaka. I mean, there's, uh, you know, he, he definitely made that window of Phoenix contention end sooner than it should have. And they obviously have never even gotten close to back to that uh, afterwards. You had him as your bottom owner, didn't you? I believe that I did. And I stand by it. I think mine was MJ. That sounds right. Uh, that podcast is available for those who want to listen to it. On, on uh, Stitcher Premium. Premium. Yes. Let's uh, do a couple quick hitters here. In New York, Courtney Lee with a sore neck is slated now to miss the entire preseason. And that's never a great indication that they're going to start the season on time. I mean, Lee is really the only thing remotely approximating a two-way guy on the wing. Looks like Lance Thomas is going to start at the four right now. He's had a couple of injury-plagued years. Uh, but, you know, if he's healthy, I think he can contribute a little bit, but certainly isn't going to help help you know new york scoring problems there uh and then mitchell robinson uh did have an ankle sprain but it looks like kind of more of a week or two type of thing not as serious as it looked uh and then in okc they have had all kinds of problems yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. The news that Andre Robertson, he had a setback coming back from his knee surgery on his left patella. And the current phraseology here is two knee surgeries, two knee surgeries. On, that's on right. His left patella yeah. is that uh, he will be reevaluated and reevaluated is always a very important term here. That is it does not mean return. That just means that's the next time they're going to look at it in two yeah. months. And Royce Young adding a little bit of color that Robertson was on track to be back sometime in November. And so and and he mentioned that his return to play would be longer than that two month, which is exactly what we said in terms of being reevaluated then. And we still really haven't heard much about Russell Westbrook's return to the four either. Yeah, we have it just to finish up on Robertson. I mean, the timeline torn patellar tendon. Then I, I think it was late June, early July. I want to say it was June was suffering some swelling, had to have a second procedure. He will now have a third procedure. This one uh, to address potentially a loose stitch, which you remember that term from a uh, Russell Westbrook's return from meniscus, meniscus surgery back in 2013, 14, where he ended up having three surgeries as well. And so, yeah, reevaluate in two months. I mean, you have to imagine it's three before he's playing again and the thunder are extremely extremely thin on the right. wing you know they've been starting terrence ferguson actually has a concussion right now but they're starting him you know tlc is in that mix how many diallo played like 25 minutes the other night i mean a Abri- uh, Abrinus you know, is a possibility i mean the, and, and all of the yeah. all of these guys are imperfect and one of the options once westbrook returns would be dennis schroeder but schroeder hasn't occupied that role and neither westbrook nor schroeder has spent meaningful time guarding two guards so that puts a lot well that's not true actually schroeder Schroeder uh, guarded Bradley Beal a lot in the uh, in the, second in the playoffs round. and actually did okay. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah I guess he did have he, that moment. He, he can like chase guys around if he's like, all right, I got to lock in on this guy. It's when he has to like actually be, you know, a closeout guy. It mm-hmm. doesn't look too good. But, you know, maybe he can be better. But yeah, you, you started talking about Westbrook. So I, uh, what's the latest with him? Well, so he still hasn't returned to practice. And I mean, we're recording this almost exactly a week before the start of the regular season. So when somebody hasn't returned to practice, you kind of assume that it might linger on a little bit longer 
which is another real challenge for them because then they have to replace another guy in the rotation. But one thing I want to go back to with Robertson just briefly, and this this ties in with, with Westbrook. <laughs> we can't stop talking about Andre Robertson. No, is, is that because he's out for much longer, you get all these cascading effects of not only do you have to find a starter, but somebody's going to have to fill in with the backup role, but it compromises a lot of what made Oklahoma City's defense so good. And I mean, now Paul George is just going to have a lot more on his plate defensively. We'll see if that affects him offensively or if they just sacrifice a little bit on that end. They have the personnel to handle it, but they don't have really any perfect solutions. And so another reason that I was uncomfortable with the shooter thing, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe shooter fits in in that role perfectly. And, and Sam Presti knows a lot more than I do on this on this specific point. But throwing as many resources as they have into those kinds of those kind of positions and then taking more flyers on the wing has consequences. And so now they're they're going to have to see how it works. You, you never know, like it, it could be it could have been somebody in a different position that got hurt, but they're going to have to scramble here. And that doesn't I'm not saying like they're going to miss the playoffs or anything like that, but it does get a lot harder. Yeah. And with Westbrook, I mean, he took some light contact, I think, today, but he hasn't been cleared for full contact. And that's, you know, full contact, that's usually, all right, we're going to play one-on-one, two-on-two for a while. And then, you know, I mean, it's really hard to imagine that he'll be ready within the next two weeks on the timeline that we've seen so far. So you have to imagine, certainly opening night against the Warriors, it'll kill him to miss that. But, you know, that's not the game they want him coming back for either. So that game will lose a little bit of its luster, uh, especially with it being in Golden State. Uh and then uh, you, know, you just have to wonder about the, the Thunder. They have not been very effective with Westbrook off the floor, although they do at least have Felton uh, as a backup point guard option beyond Schroeder, who's uh, had some moments in the preseason. Let's go now to the Jimmy Butler situation. Butler, we are now three weeks into that, reiterating on Monday per John Krasinski and Shams Charania that he wants out uh, of Minnesota. But there was also a report that he doesn't plan to miss regular season games per Woj, which, you know, I and I guess forfeit the game checks now there's still always things he could do he can get a nagging injury he can you know just play like crap and not try you know I mean there, there's a lot of things here you know Thibodeau still thinks he can bring him back Tibbs you know is, hey we're paying you do your job you know he does not exactly focused on the interpersonal dynamics of things it would seem but then it was odd the the amount of leaks that we've had about these deals with the heat that have not ultimately uh of course gone through as of yet yeah, I mean, we're we're getting into a, a, the, there was a, a, a part of the Krasinski Shromney piece that came out on Tuesday that got into what I think has to be the biggest challenge of this whole circumstance if you are opposing GM, which is who are you talking to and what kind of leverage exists here? Because generally speaking, I mean, you would say for a player who, especially one who is on an expiring contract, that value drops every day because that's one fewer day that he can be on his new team. I mean, you see that all over the place, you know, guys at the deadline are usually acquired for less than guys at, you know, before the season and so on and so forth. But it seems like what Minnesota, what, let's say Thibodeau-Laden, what they're feeling like is that, well, the offers are so bad now, they can't get worse. And they might be right. It's entirely possible that they are. But the idea that teams are going to like fall over themselves to give Minnesota more leverage here when they're getting a smaller amount of Jimmy Butler is challenging. It's kind of one of those circumstances where, uh, to me, to me, it's this idea 
idea that it's that the coach is feeding the GM like, well, if the offers aren't good, we might as well keep him and who knows, maybe he'll come. And so you you get into that idea where you kind of stay in something for too long because there are ways that it benefits Thibodeau personally. Yeah. Now, it could that could all just be posturing, too. You know, I mean, it could be, oh, hey, we'll really keep him if these offers don't get better. Uh, but some of the permutations that were out there for Miami, I think were interesting. You know, the criticism, of course, has been the, the quote out of Miami in a Barry Jackson piece was uh, a Heat official saying they're asking for each of our firstborn child uh children i guess it would be uh and there is a discussion that the heat relented they were including josh richardson in some talks now maybe they're willing to include richardson if the heat if you know the wolves also took on a bad contract so you don't know that like okay they included richardson so that makes it fair but we talked about this before i think that like richardson for butler straight up is pretty fair you know i, I think the, if the wolves are asking for that for more than that which it seems like they probably are whether it's salary relief with gorgie jang uh you know whether it's a, another young player like bam Adebayo, uh you know I, I don't think that they really that it's really fair to do that frankly uh you know i, I think that and so if that if they're still like okay we want a young player and a rotation player and a pick you know that no sorry like he's not worth that much and you are being unrealistic if that is in fact the asking price but we don't know that of course for sure clearly apropos of nothing uh bam Adebayo has not been playing during the preseason it looks like he has an issue with his right shoulder and richardson i believe has been playing is that correct he wasn't at the beginning but i think he came back maybe i'm wrong on that yeah yeah i I think he's back now um but yeah uh with james johnson not playing at all either coming back from that hernia surgery which is a long time to be out with a hernia surgery i think he had that back in may so you worried a little bit that there might be a complication there uh and then uh Adebayo as well for his part is actually back now he's playing through uh the shoulder injury he played in their most recent preseason game uh, on monday i uh, played 24 minutes so I, I there was some concern that he hadn't really been practicing but now that apparently is uh alleviated um, yeah, that was a bad fall. I was watching Derek it live. Jones, that was yeah. it was very concerning. And yeah, and Richardson you're talking about the Derek the, the Jones Derek fall. Jones yeah, I was fall. watching that live. And Richardson played yeah. 26 minutes in the aforementioned game on Monday. So he is he is back in in full force, or at least in that version of full force. We might as well go to the to the really disheartening news out of San Antonio that DeJounte Murray is out for this entire season with a torn ACL. He was the centerpiece, really, for what interested me about San Antonio this year, the the true transition piece as they kind of moved out of that era. I mean, with Kawhi and Manu leaving, but of course, they still have LaMarcus and DeMar DeRozan. And so now a lot of playmaking on the shoulders of those two guys, presumably Patty Mills will get some. And then also the cascading problem I talk about a lot where when you have to move a guy from the second unit to the starting lineup, then you have to find a replacement for him in the second unit. And so it sounds like that might be Derek White, but San Antonio. Antonio, you know, Spurs magic is going to have to go a lot further now than it was going to a week ago. Yeah, Murray, everyone had been raving about the way his jump shot looked early in camp, the work he'd done over the summer with Chip Engelin. We never really got to see whether that was true, but certainly had it been, you know, that would have been a a, a big improvement for him. And, and obviously he was already really a shark defensively. And so this is going to be a big opportunity for Derek White, who did almost nothing last year, but had a, a nice summer league. He is 24 already, a, a late bloomer. Someone that I know Mike Schmitz is like, White isn't really quite your every 
free down pick and roll player but he doesn't need to be if they got DeRozan on the roster as well and he, he's kind of a jack of all trades master of none type offensively but that player can be valuable you know that's what he's supposed to be and we haven't seen him be effective there at the NBA level yet and you know Mills will play a lot more now uh, I do think they'll be better offensively with Mills out there than with Murray just because they desperately need someone spacing the floor and so if in fact Mills starts which he may not they still seem to really like bringing him off the bench but if Mills starts I do actually think they'll be better offensively but obviously worse on defense where Murray had shown so much promise and then a player who might have been able to take advantage of the absence of Murray he's now looking at potentially much of a lost year six to eight week prognostication for Lonnie Walker after another meniscus surgery he had one in the same knee prior to his season at Miami and uh, you'll recall there were some rumors that he fell in the draft because of that knee issue and now to have had surgery again I think it was another acute injury that he suffered in practice but you know this probably puts him Christmas New Year's before he's coming back and with Greg Popovich not particularly fond of rookies with Walker also a guy who only played one year in college very young you didn't necessarily expect him to make a huge impact this year anyway but it seems like there's almost no chance of that now unless they're just totally out of it by the end of the year it could make it easier to have the Spurs give him some time in Austin and just really focus on development hey we need to get you right we need to teach you the right the methodology and all that and I am excited to see what this development team does with a player who's physically talented and young that that's what's going on with DeJounte Murray as well and the, the early signs have been strong there but we will have to see it Dwight Howard also is dealing with what was originally believed to be a back injury but reporting on Tuesday is indicating I do not I, I hadn't heard this word ever in my life I'm going to say piriformis oh well if you're when your wife is a yoga teacher you have heard that okay word before did I uh yeah piriformis uh which uh Shem's helpfully notes is a must in the buttocks uh but i already knew that because my wife is a yoga teacher uh so but yeah that's uh I mean, all that stuff is connected. The the glutes, the lower back, where Howard, of course, had surgery. And really, you know, a lot of Howard's fortunes, I think, has been an underrated factor in his performance the last few years, has been health. You know, I think he has days where he looks real spry and he can explode with the, his knee issues, his back issues, feeling okay. He was supposed to have a pain-killing injection as well. But, you know, certainly if he's not practicing right now, again, a week before the regular season starts, you wonder whether... Uh, uh, it's gonna be a jeopardy and so i guess yan mahimi is gonna start uh, jason smith's time i mean they're uh they do not have a lot behind him at center and then markeith morris suffering from an abdominal injury we don't know the severity of it yet but worth recalling that he had hernia surgery around this time last year and you know that's not a great sign as well um you know if, if he is again suffering from uh some of those issues we can move on to a little bit more positive news from Indiana. Thaddeus Young has been out. We've been concerned about his absence because of Indiana's issues at the, at the four, but he returned to practice, could play in the last preseason game, so hopes are that he'll be ready to start the regular season. Someone who, you know, everyone's been downplaying the injury uh, is Draymond Green. Uh, sore knees, really missed, a, I think, over a week of practice now. He went through shoot around on Monday, did not play, though. The hope was he could return on Wednesday against the Lakers. Looks like he's not going to play in that game either in las vegas although steve kerr quipped that uh he would be making the trip with the team since it was las vegas uh but this is just the kind of nagging injury he played through a lot last year green is not known necessarily as a workout warrior in terms of taking care of his body uh he's getting into his late 20s this is you know we'll see i mean he's you know talking about trying to be defensive player of the year again this year this could be nothing but it's just not a great sign these kind of nagging things the short power forward 
injured. Uh, how long is he going to last? I mean, that's one of the major questions, obviously, with you know Clay Thompson and KD staying after this year are, are uh, the first two. But how well Green ages is a, another question for this team. And you know, with last year's regular season, you know, it doesn't look like necessarily he's going to be able to give that crazy effort that he gave. You know, in in the three years before last year, over the course of the entire regular season, is another data point against. It could also have big financial implications for Green. I've written about this extensively at The Athletic for those who are interested. But Green is currently not eligible for a designated veteran extension, and he could become eligible either by winning Defensive Player of the Year, something he has talked about, or by being an All-NBA selection this year. And because of the current extension system, it is possible that he is not willing to accept something at the, you know, what are the quote-unquote normal extension rules. And so even though the Warriors... Yeah, th- three years, $72 million is the most he could get, but that would have to be uh, before the regular season if you were going to do that, and he's obviously not going to. But, you know, I think it'd be very interesting to see, does he get more than $72 million guaranteed on his next contract if he waits all the way until free agency? If I were him, I would actually think very seriously about taking that, but, you know, seeing all these other guys get paid, it's got to be difficult to just do that sort of risk mitigation but i i, I yeah let's see where he's at in yeah. a couple of years and it's now, possible that the extension negotiations next summer because green will not be a free agent until 2020 will take a different tenor and that maybe they can come to come to some sort of agreement at that yeah. point and by then they'll have clarity the, they could offer sure. him another yeah. year and they could offer point. and they'll have more clarity on what's happening with clay and kd and so how much money they have that will next this next season sorry i should clarify 1920 will be the warriors first season under the repeater tax so they'll have a a more clear idea of what their financial present and future is at that juncture but it is still important to keep in the background i mean the warriors are the title favorites this year so whatever changes it and let's jump to another title contender this year an interesting piece of news from the boston celtics kyrie irving went to a kind of a tip-off event a season ticket holder type thing at the garden and told them that he's quote planning on re-signing here meaning boston next year and i always want to preface these it's kind of like what a college football player says when they're thinking about their draft stock at the before their bowl game and they can you know they they can say whatever they want they're not held to it but I don't remember anyone ever being this vehement and that's what I wanted to say is that he didn't have to do this at all he could have said nothing he could even if he was asked a directed question I mean we're seeing this all over the league right now because there's so many guys that are going to be free agents this upcoming summer he didn't have to say anything he chose to I think this is a very very positive sign for the Celtics that he will come back. Now, would I feel so confident in that that I would like trade Terry Rozier? No, because you don't know if Kyrie's going to stay healthy. Don't know, you know, don't know anything until the contract is signed. Rozier will be a restricted free agent, but Dinian should be feeling better about his position there and meaningfully so than he was unless these overtures had already been made privately. But even then, making it privately versus making it publicly. Yeah, th- they had been actually per, per Shens, but yeah, you, you're obviously doubling down and, you know, Kyrie would have a lot lot of egg on his face if he leaves after after saying this but i i do think it's almost more likely to me that you know something might happen with Kyrie and his recovery or his performance this year to where the celtics wouldn't necessarily want to offer him just you know the whatever you want five-year 190 million dollar contract which is the most they can give him um and that maybe that could throw a wrench into things if he just doesn't play as well um so you know he certainly has quite the injury history uh and we'll see how he looks he's looked a little slow to me early in camp um but you know 
month that's expected after missing it uh as much time as he did uh in brooklyn alan crab looked to have severely sprained his ankle last night x-rays were negative but we don't know what the severity of that is quite yet ronde hollis jefferson suffered a left adductor or groin strain uh in the offseason he may not be ready for opening night he's still a limited participant in practice and then uh shaz napier suffered a hamstring injury early in camp he's still not playing either so again you got to wonder if he's gonna be ready for the start of the regular season but they do have good point guard depth and then the last thing to mention is a former guest on this podcast way back in the early days uh and famous nba better bob vulgaris has been hired by the dallas mavericks uh to basically it sounds from the title like he's going to be uh involved in their analytics i know there are certainly some people who are uh seeing bob's twitter account who are looking forward to welcoming him to the reality uh, of the nba but you know uh, bob certainly uh, probably more than anyone in the private sphere to be sure uh i would imagine is put in more time uh, on analytics uh, and following the game and so he of course is able to predict performance with his betting and so you know predicting performance is a huge part of obviously evaluation and personnel moves in the nba so i'm very curious to see uh, what happens uh, with him but you know certainly a, a guy with a great resume uh, for dallas to hire and uh i'm guessing he probably didn't come cheap either I'm happy for Bob that he's going to get this opportunity with the team. Dallas is is a fascinating one because of their flexibility moving forward. I mean, they they largely kept the powder dry, and so we'll see. We'll see. I mean, it'll be hard to know, but have him having a voice in the process, even though us and you know NBA Twitter will be the lesser for it. All right, we will uh, be right back to bring in Derek Bodner right now. Time for another of our most anticipated teams, uh, in part due to the enigma and the mystery. Uh, that is uh, Markel Fultz, so we'll be sure to start off by asking uh, about him. Derek Bodner of The Athletic, how you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, so, I mean, that's obviously the place to start here. We've uh, the Markel Fultz jump shot, Drew Hanlon, the guru. It, it was a mystery other than just little leaks uh, on social media. Now that jump shot has been uh, unveiled. And I want to talk in detail about Fultz's preseason, but just on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, with 10 being, okay, he's back to looking right on track to where he was at Washington, and 1 being, you know, just still absolutely terrible. Given your hopes and expectations, for how Fultz's jumper would improve in the offseason where would you say uh it is now that uh Hanlon's work has been revealed so hopes and hope and expectations wise this was probably one of the more difficult things to forecast I mean the range of outcomes on this was was pretty ridiculous and you really had no like in terms of expectations I'm not sure I had one because I could have really seen any outcome coming to play I would say it's probably on the positive end of the scale uh you know especially seeing what I've seen you know before games in workouts like, I think he's on the right path back to having a workable jump shot. I think there are some concerns. You know, I think it's a lower release point, a little more in front of his body, a little more difficult to get off. I think it's better off the dribble in terms of a high release point than it is off the catch. But I think what I saw in practice, they're at least on the right track. Now, the question is, how long is it going to take for that to be a consistent weapon in games? And that I'm not 100% sure. And, you know, he had that one good game um, against Orlando, I think it was, where he came out and I think he shot like five for 10 on jump shots. 
and one for four from three. One of them was a heave and really good from mid-range. And then he went over to China and he took a step back, not necessarily in terms of effectiveness, but in terms of willingness to even take them. And I think that's probably, Mm. you know, we can sit here and agonize over his form and really, um, you know, put a a real crucial eye to it. And I think his form is probably going to be up and down a little bit. Like I think whatever he worked on in terms of of Drew Hanlon over the summer, I'm not sure it's repeated enough where it's going to be 100% consistent. But I think the bigger issue is, is he confident enough to take them in game? Is he going to, you know, if he misses three or four or five in a row, is he going to take that sixth one to really keep the defense honest and to make, make, make continued progression back to where he needs to be? I think he's on the right track. I think the form is immeasurably better than it was, you know, six months ago. I don't think it's a finished task. And I think the biggest question is going to be when he starts struggling, is he going to be willing to take that shot? And how much are defense is going to give him that shot? Um, We'll see. It really is one of the biggest unknowns to me. And it's still... I would say I'm generally positive while being grounded. You know, I think I think a lot of people probably saw that Orlando game. Sixers fans, not necessarily NBA fans, but saw that Orlando game and said he's back. He's making jumpers in game. That's all we could have asked for. And I think there's going to be some times over the next couple of weeks where Sixers fans are probably going to be frustrated because he's not taking them enough or he's not maybe not. Maybe the form reverts a little bit. And I think we probably have to keep an even keel and say somewhere in the middle because I do think it's still going to be a, you know, trying from time to time. Yeah, the three to me still looks pretty bad. Uh, you know, if he's wide open with an hour to get it off, he's taking it. We'll see what kind of percentage he ends up hitting on those. You know, as you mentioned, I mean, I think both the willingness to take it, certainly off the dribble, like there's not even a thought uh, at this point. And that was a, a big part of what looked so good for him, of course, uh, at Washington. it's. I agree with you. It's better. Um, it's probably about what I would have expected, I, I would say. You know, I'd say kind of a, a five out of 10 for me to, to answer my own question yep. um but I, I still remain uh skeptical that he's going to get back to being like the plus shooter that you know he was really drafted on that basis um and, and i think this is something that's going to affect his career probably you know the whole time i think he looks okay shooting within about 18 feet or so but uh, still not quite the same even there you mentioned the release point the versatility of the shot uh and then also just the the fact that in today's game you really need to be able to shoot that three-pointer off the dribble to be you know the number one overall pick type of player that he was um outside of the jump shot what what do you think of how he's looked here in the preseason yeah i think some some good some bad um defensively i think it's clear you can see his size and how that can be used i think at times he can get blown up by screens and that's common for young guards he's gonna have to learn to overcome that uh in terms of running the offense you know i think one of the things that stood out early is he seems to have some chemistry with joel in terms of getting him the ball early in post-ups and it it sounds a lot of times like that should be a real easy skill to have, but a lot of point guards struggle with that. I think his timing on that is is good. I think he can see over the defense. I think he can he can find those angles to make those passes. Um, you know, I think drive and kick is going to get there right now. He's not really getting to the line all that much, and I think a lot of it is because defenders are playing so far off of him that it's hard for him to get all the way to the rim, to the rim um, to make those plays. And right now, you know, you're you're kind. Of, it's real easy to goad Markel into that mid range game that so few people are really able to make a living on and I think that's giving him very little margin for error right like if he's not getting the free throw line doesn't yet have three-point range it's going to be hard for him early in the season to really be a consistent
plus efficiency offensive guy. But I think, like you said, the hope is he eventually pulls that back out to the three-point line that defenders have to really defend him coming off the, the pick. And then he's able to use that to get to the line and get to the, to the paint. Um, you know, I think he's showing a lot of the skill set, but I think it's going to take a little time for him to really put that together into an efficient NBA guard, not just because of, of the questions over the jumper, but also because he's it's essentially his rookie season. And, he's, and, and a rookie 20-year-old guard is the NBA is not really kind to. Yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, the good news, I think, is he's still got that magic with the ball in his hands he's got the that beautiful dribble that he throws out in front of himself the the great spin moves just kind of bouncing in and out of his moves especially in transition uh i think it, i don't know if he's been effective in transition yet he's actually his numbers in transition are really poor uh per synergy uh but he's been getting to the rim and, and he's able to still even with the teams playing off of him able to get in the lane and, and find people his finishing has really been terrible um with, but i think that's something that's going to get better i mean he's getting there it's not like you know he's just going up into guys and getting completely swallowed up he's kind of missing some ones where you look back and it's like okay the given the release point that's one that i think he'll be able to make it eventually although his finishing actually in washington was probably an underrated weakness um but i i think i'm not that worried about that aspect and you mentioned the defense that's probably the one area in which he's exceeded expectations because he was one of the worst defensive guards that i can ever remember evaluating uh and washington just you know in terms of his effort level and stuff but uh, the sixers is a lot of credit for turning both Ben Simmons and him into guys who try on defense when you know they were two just terrible uh college defenders I mean that's forgotten about with Ben Simmons that you know he's a, a really good defender now when he was just a, a complete joke at LSU too yeah no and I mean they're they're pretty much the two picture picture players in terms of they have a lot of defensive tools but they never really never really cared at the collegiate level or maybe they were in systems that never really you know pushed them to care or made use of their skill sets um for them to translate and really be attentive on that end, which we're a little early in saying that on Markel, but I think Ben played a, a full season where he was generally pretty, you know, he was pretty aware. And sometimes you can get caught sleeping off the ball, but he showed the kind of versatility on the perimeter and 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 the one-on-one capabilities and the playmaking off the ball where he, I mean, he, he blew away expectations on the end to the point where you could really project out a, a, a all-defensive team in his future. Um, and for Markel to do that, you're right. I think the Sixers deserve a lot of credit. I think a lot of times we look at development in terms of offensive skill sets and how that progresses through the early part of their career but getting these these young kids to buy in and use their you know physical potential on the defensive side has been a a big plus well so markel has been starting this last game uh, in concert with his struggles they are now talking about starting jj reddick in the second half uh what do you make of all these machinations I think what I make is that they're probably not 100% sure what they want to do. And I think if you ask Brett Brown right now, who, what, what lineup gives you the best chance of winning today? I yeah. think he would probably tell you last year's starting lineup is the one. I mean, that lineup was, I think, the best high-minute five-man lineup in the NBA. Uh, it was... Yeah, t- 21 net rating, I believe, right. is the stat that we've heard a lot of places. And, you know, maybe you have some concerns in the playoffs, specifically with Boston. Um, there were some defensive matchups the Sixers just couldn't. They didn't have the athletes on the perimeter to defend against, and maybe you're building towards that. I think probably even more you're, you're looking to show confidence in Markel and the progress that he's made. My biggest concern is that if you've already 
already committed to him in the starting lineup and you have to walk that back, then what does that do for his confidence? Like if they're taking the step, they better be real confident that he's going to deliver on it because I think it could be tough for him to then revert back to the bench. But I think I think there's probably some acknowledgement that making a change in the starting lineup is going to be risky. And look, we, we can, you know, focus so much on JJ going to the bench. If Redick played 30 minutes last year per game, what's he going to play? 27 this year. It's probably not that big of a that big of a deal. You're worried about the lineup getting minutes and really realistically starting lineups probably only play at the beginning of the first quarter and the third quarter anyway. So you're only changing that for half the time. There, there's probably just, they probably just want to get that lineup some consistent minutes and we'll see. I think everything right now is still very much in flux. Yeah, I agree with you that starting Markel does not give them the best chance to win, but maybe that's one of the advantages of having Brett Brown, maybe now the most powerful figure in the organization he feels a little more security and coming from that Popovich legacy as well to play the long game a little bit more though I think that kind of mentality in addition to some other things is why I'm not quite as high on the Sixers at least in the regular season this year as some may be um you know maybe they could also uh play Simmons at power forward and have Sarch come off the bench if they feel like with Markel they just don't have enough shooting out there because I mean I really especially before they got Bellinelli and Ilyasova without Redick on the floor last year like they were just powerless like they couldn't score uh and they just desperately need his shooting even though i mean i think weaning themselves off of a dependence on him both because of his contract situation and also his weaknesses against the best teams in the playoffs defensively you know might be something they'd want to do eventually it's just they don't really have a replacement for him on the roster right now yeah i mean going back to markel real quick for one second you know i think yeah. when you look at the the best um the the, the best lineup sixes will have in the future what what you hope what if this thing works out they're they're your best lineup is going to be Markel, Simmons, and Embiid with with players around them. So I think they probably just want to throw that and evaluate that and maybe starting, um, you know, maybe realizing that they might take a little bit of a hit now, but they, like I said, they want to grow that. They're kind of in the, that middle ground where they both want to grow. They're, they're young centerpieces and also compete for a an Easter Conference championship. It's a weird kind of spot to be in, but I think it, they're trying to balance that a little bit. And I mean, we'll see how it works when, you know, you have Brad Stevens on the other end game planning against it. You're not playing, you know, meaningless preseason games in China, but we will. I, I think it's probably trying to balance that in terms of of whether or not Sarge, Sarge could come off the bench. You know, that was kind of when we're going through these hypotheticals in the in the summer. You're saying, all right, look, if Markel comes back, shows that he has the jump shot, plays well in the early season, who do you send to the bench? Sarge was the one I thought was the most likely um, because I think there's you know elements within the Sixers who really want that um, you know switchable perimeter defenders, and certainly Redick is not that. But I think if you have Markel, Fultz, um, Ben Simmons playing kind of like a hybrid four defensively, and Covington, you can you can make a lot of headway that way. But also just because JJ Reddick's gravity, for as well as, as Dario shot the ball, and you know I think he ended up at thirty nine percent. He really came on a, towards the end of the season. Reddick is almost always going to have more gravity when he's running off of those screens, and his ability to move without the ball, I think, puts a lot more pressure on a defense than Charge, who's mostly a stationary standstill shooter. So considering it, who you want to run your offense around, and Embiid and Simmons and Fultz maximizing Reddick's time with them to me makes a lot of sense. And I'm a little surprised that he's the one who ends up going to the bench. Um, But I mean, we'll see. I think part of it might be that, you know, I don't think... Sharich is 100% comfortable coming off the bench. Like he struggled with it the first two seasons when asked. Um, he's always played better in a starting role. Part of that's because most of his bench time came 
as a rookie. Um, and maybe maybe he's just grown as a player and he would fare better now. But I think there might be some hesitancy from him to go back to a bench role. And he's clearly a, a longer term piece. So maybe they want to see whether or not this lineup will work because they know Sharch prefers that. I don't know. It's just a little bit of speculation. Yeah. All right. Let's take a quick break here and we're right back with more uh, with Derek Motter right after this. You must love hoops if you're enjoying another great episode of Dunked On. The Locked On Podcast Network has more hoops for you. Locked On has a podcast on every NBA team. If you're a Lakers fan, a Bucks fan, a Celtics fan, or a Mavericks fan, the Locked On Podcast Network has a daily podcast on your favorite team. All 30 NBA teams have a daily podcast at Locked On. Search on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So uh, one of Danny's favorite phrases is, is the juice worth the squeeze? And with Fultz, he's just such a fascinating figure. I I could talk for this entire hour about him. But, you know, we've talked about, hey, what is the possible best lineup for the Sixers in the future? And how are you feeling about Fultz now in the long term? I mean, I think you can argue about whether he's going to be good this year. I think we both kind of agree maybe he won't be that good, you know, especially with the level this team is going to try and win at. But how are you feeling about him both in terms of whether he's going to get to be good enough to be the kind of primary ball handler type player that he was drafted to be and then also his fit with the other two big stars in the long term at this point given what the improvement or lack thereof that we've seen in the jump shot over the summer so you know a lot of times when i'm talking about young players i kind of go back to ben falk and the way that he grades like probability of outcomes and i'm not sure i necessarily think he has less potential now than he did when he was drafted what's changed is probably the probability of reaching that potential yeah. and i don't know because he's still the same six four guard six ten wingspan you know really good handle can get to his spots um you know can showcase athleticism at times although he's sometimes a little more of a two-footed leaper seems to be seems to need to gather himself a little bit but still really athletic when he can gear up he has a lot of tools and skills that would pretend itself well to being a you know a really effective guard at this level um he never had a picturesque jump shot like he was never if you would have have said hey emulate this shot you probably would have never done that for him um you know he had a a real two motion shot it was a little bit slow it was a little bit inconsistent on the release point which is probably what they were looking to address last summer and also by the way i think you know coming into that season at washington you know people weren't like oh man this guy's like this awesome shooter like that season at washington was like well above where he'd been as a shooter previously but he made so many difficult contested jump shots and he had such a high release point and he had such confidence in that jump shot that it seemed like a really relatively easy projection to make so now that that projection is a lot more difficult you know i've seen a lot of sixers fans optimistic sixers fans say look ben simmons doesn't need a jump shot why does markel well first of all it's because markel has to fit with ben simmons and two league guards who can't shoot is really tough to do in 2018 but also ben simmons is one of the biggest freaks of nature we'll see and 610 with his size his strength and his speed they're just aren't like they're there you're not going to find many of them ever and for as, as good as markel is and for as many physical tools as he has they're not nearly as unique and as difficult to guard as as ben is and even even simmons last year you saw in the boston series when a team gets a, a, a real good team with real good defensive personnel and a real good coach has that kind of time to game plan for him it's a little more his, his life is a lot more difficult so you know i think he's gonna need that jump shot i think his jump shot does unlock his dribble drive game and his ability to be that three level scorer does he need to be you know, knock down from three. No, but right now he has so little margin for error that it's, it's like I said earlier, it's going to be tough for him to be consistently 
efficient. So I would like to think if he figured out how to be a really good jump shooter once and he made the kind of progress that you said right about expectations um, over the summer that eventually he's going to work his way back to at least being a weapon on his jump shot. I do think there's pretty good reason for optimism. Like I said, take that physical skill set, take what I, I, I do believe is a strong work ethic and progress on that jump, sh- jump shot that he will be back. But it, it's one of the tougher to gauge questions that you'll ever be asked just because we don't have the full story of what happened last year. And, you know, if, like I said, if he runs through a stretch of 10 games where he's shooting 15% from three, is he going to have the confidence to go out for the next 10 games and continue to try to work on that in game we really we really just don't have answers to those questions right now yeah i would second your idea that you know the ceiling is still there but the chance of reaching it is much much lower you know i mean and i think really you know i would put it down in like the 15 to 20 percent range at this point because it's all just too weird and yeah it's a, it's a little unprecedented but you know most of the time in sports when we see people have these like mental hurdles like this you know they're not really the same afterwards and to think that something happened to him that it took him over a year to get back to the point where he's still not even as good as he was when he was drafted I mean that's just a major concern right I mean you just have to say like hey you know you can work on this as hard as you want but there appears to be some kind of a mental component to it that it is if not immune to just working and and reps uh is at least you know makes that not the entire solution and so I, it just and this kills me because i loved him as a prospect i thought he was the clear obvious number one overall pick last year uh i really enjoy watching him play but it just and especially then when you throw in the fact as well you know that they've got simmons and so you know maybe if he were moved he might be able to thrive a lot more but with simmons on the floor as well and simmons not showing any signs of moving his game outside of 15 feet uh maybe nor should he uh at this point you know now he he has to be even better than he might have to be on another team to really fit in with this core and and there's just there's so much weirdness as well just around like how it is that this happened and you know his like his interviews about it uh, you know there doesn't really seem to be like a good party line for what's what's happened and and it's just you know people are always talking about always confidence and you have to kind of baby him in that way and so all of that just there's just a lot of smoke there to make me concerned that he's not going to get there which again it really pains me to say because i I enjoy him from an aesthetic standpoint and i was very high on him coming into the draft as i think you know just about everyone was yeah no i was 100 behind that trade when it happened i thought he was not only the clear number one in that draft but i thought when you looked at his you know his middle pick and roll game which is something that you you projected with simmons was going to be a struggle for him like he wasn't going to really add that to the sixers and you said look this kid can do it you look at his jump shot maybe you can grow that off ball catch and shoot that should be the easiest shot to learn it was a pretty easy projection to make you thought their skill sets could work pretty well in tandem and i think i think ben simmons has kind of shown a little bit in terms of off ball ability as well and the sixers i think and brett brown are going to get creative in trying to force mismatches 
where he can use his size and strength. So I think there is hope that those two can work, but that jump shot has to be a plus and not just serviceable, but it has to be a real plus down the line. And it, I have no real ability to project out three or four years in how that's going to look. Like I said, I think the progress they made over the summer is a start, but they have to continue to build on that. So let's talk about the two holdover stars. We've spent a lot of time on faults here, but Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, both of them young enough to take big steps forward this year uh based on what you've seen in preseason and the reports of what they've been working on what do you think the chances are for that this year so i think i think a lot of people are going to look at the sixers and i heard you and danny talking about it what what's a low-hanging fruit for the sixers and i think markel is going to generate a lot of that attention and probably deservedly so like if he comes back and he's a full set we saw at washington that would certainly elevate the sixers but i think the biggest low-hanging fruit is probably just joel Embiid, and that's a weird thing to say for a player who was you know first team all nba well runner up in defensive player of the year who was you know a really really good player an all-star starter um or no second team all nba yeah second team anyway it doesn't matter um not first team i, I remember that now um but for a player yeah, that he was didn't he didn't right get he didn't the get bonus. the super max correct yeah. yeah um i think i think it was second i think ad was first anyway this doesn't matter at all but for a player that was that good and had that much success um across the league you know i think if he first of all if he stays on the court and this is a different conversation than we've ever had before this wasn't the meniscus yeah this wasn't the navicular bone he just got hit in the head hit in the eye socket by mark Fultz's shoulder um which is a little ironic but anyway um <laughs> so he missed the last 15 ga- or the last however many games of the season that cut down on his overall time play they're conservative with his playing time before that point because he really didn't have an off season to gear up in terms of getting into game shape so if he just comes in has no restrictions from the beginning and is able to stay healthy six are going to be a much better team because of that and i think this is the first summer where he's really had an offseason to work on his game and to work on his conditioning. He was rehabbing an injury, usually a pretty serious injury, a meniscus tear or a navicular bone in previous summers. So I think just getting into game shape, playing more minutes, playing more games and not getting fatigued as quickly on the court. And I think you could really you, you could really see signs of Embiid when he got fatigued last year. Um, a lot of those bad three point attempts would come when he was fatigued. A lot of the bad transition defense at times would come when he was fatigued and he struggled to, to run rim to rim. And I think what you've seen so far this preseason, he's making a real concerted effort to get good, making a a real concerted effort to get good post position early in the shot clock. I think he's shooting about 70% on two pointers in the preseason. Um, And hopefully that sustains itself more because I think one of his big takeaways over the summer was conditioning and post play. And for a league that has kind of drifted away from that, I think Embiid is sort of the exception. You know, I think if you look at the synergy numbers for Embiid posting up, especially when you start adding in possession ending events out of passes from his post-ups, it's way higher than a half-court average. And I think Embiid can improve upon that considerably. I think he can be one of the few guys who you can really run a lot of post-offense through and who can generate looks for his teammates out of the post. But he's got to be in the shape to do that. And he's got to get a little bit better at, rec- not a little bit, a lot better at recognizing double teams and making the right decisions out of there. But I think he's probably the one who can improve the most on a pretty easy basis. I think Simmons would be easy to say he would improve a lot if the, if he if he, if, he, if he developed a jumper. But I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, so Embiid, uh, 14 out of 22 in the post in the half court this preseason 33 out of 47 on two pointers the the turnover rate is still sky high out of the post 27 percent of his possessions uh and and a lot of those too i think have been the clean up the post play offensive foul type of plays where he's fighting for that deep position but i love to see that mentality Uh, i have noticed him running the floor more doing those post-ups right at the charge circle which you know uh, are 
so effective because you just can't get help there. You can't get a front, uh, or if you do, there's not going to be help there on the backside and transition. So you can lob over the top to him. And, and you know, at, at seven two, and you know, I don't know how much he weighs these days, 270, 280 or something like that. You know, there are a few players who can keep him from getting there. And, and you're right, last year in the playoffs, he he really failed in the post to generate offense against Al Horford, who he has a massive size advantage on. You know, Al Horford, the knock on him used to be he wasn't big enough uh, at center. And so, uh, you know, he should be able to beat those guys. And, you know, it doesn't matter how big you are, though. If you're tired, you're not going to be able to use that big body and fight for position. And I think one of the concerns was, well, you know, he's got all these lower body injuries. Like, do they have to protect him? Can he just not practice? Can he not get into shape? And I think it's good to see that at least with his work over the summer, he's been able to answer that and say, no, I can get into that type of shape. So I, I am encouraged there. Uh, Simmons, what have you seen from him? You know, the, the talk was he would at least improve his jumper around the free throw line, which even that, you know, he really needed to do. He says he's not trying to shoot threes at all. Uh, what's the the look been from him? Yeah, I, I think some people have kind of run with that. You know, he basically said at media day, I'm not coming out and I'm shooting threes. I think a lot of people ran with that thinking he wasn't working on his jump shot. I think he did work on his jump shot. I don't know if we're going to see it in yeah. game action this year, though. Like he, we talk a lot about Markel Fultz and his confidence level. I think you can say the same thing about Ben Simmons. The difference is Ben Simmons has never been confident taking a jump shot. So I think we overlook it a little bit, but I'm not sure he's at the point where he's confident, you know, to pull up off the dribble from 15, 16, 17 feet and shoot with any consistency right now. And, you know, I think his free throw form looks better. Like he clearly made an effort to tuck his elbow in. And I think he's cleaned up some aspects of his free throw. We'll see if it, that trans translates to results early on in the season but I think I think he's made some progress there but in-game jumper we just haven't seen it yet um and when he has attempted them they haven't necessarily looked good you know I think if you're going to see a major change from Simmons this year it's going to be making free throws but also seeking out contact you know when he was at LSU I think his free throw rate was in the 70s like it was pretty absurd he got to the line a ton because there was nobody other teams could throw out there who'd have the size to defend him in the post or the speed to keep up with him in transition and I don't think he attacked that as much as he he could have last year. And I think now if he's confident in his free throw and he's playing a little bit off ball and the Sixers can ru- run some action to, you know, force a switch and get him a, a mismatch down low or get him on the move and use some of the new points of emphasis in terms of, you know, calling fouls away from the ball. And if he's willing to do that, then I think you can get him some easy buckets. Whereas last year you relied almost entirely on transition to get him easy looks. So I think he can be better, but I don't think it's going to be maybe the leap that a lot hoped for, especially in terms of of the jump shot or if it is we we certainly haven't seen it yet yeah and the mention of low-hanging fruit i probably was remiss in not mentioning the turnovers last year i mean this was a we projected even before the season that they were going to lead the league in turnovers if they didn't they were second i think uh and do you think they can improve that or are they just you know simmons and Bede, these are faults these are just high turnover players and they don't have a ton of spacing and that's just how it's going to be i think turnovers are going to be a problem i don't expect them to all of a sudden be a you know top 15 team in terms of taking care of the ball. I think part of that is youth and relying so much on Simmons and Embiid. I think part of that is, you know, their their weaknesses. Um, and I think part of that is also by design. I don't think Brett Brown is going to want to run necessarily. You know, he, he's going to rely a lot on his motion offense. And I think he's willing to live with some degree of turnovers. Not what they had last year, but some degree of turnover.
turnovers if it can generate him more consistently good looks. So I think they're going to, you know, be towards the top, the worst in the league and taking care of the ball. I think the real key to this is Embiid and his, like I said, his ability to recognize a double team, to pass out of it, to dribble out of a, a post up and, and repost, to find his teammates, to recognize a bad shot and, and a bad situation. I think he can get better at all of that. And I think he'll occasionally, you know, show flashes of that, but I think he needs to put that together a little bit more consistently. And I think he's probably, if, if we're looking for a low hanging fruit in the turnover department, I think that's probably where I would look. You mentioned Brown's motion offense. Uh, Zach Lowe and Kevin Artovitz uh, listened to their pod a, a couple of days ago, and they mentioned this idea that, hey, against th- this motion offense with all these shooters running around, it's great. Uh, but against the, the Celtics, against the, some of the best defenses that they're going to face who can switch, you have versatility, that that's just not going to work as well, that they, they failed really uh, to get that working uh, against them, and that you know they're going to have to evolve a, a little bit. It, it, do you agree with, uh, and uh, I don't want to, I may be paraphrasing them a, a little bit too glibly here, but it, what do you think uh, of that assessment? And do you think the Sixers see it that way? And, and have they made any changes or will they make any changes along those lines? So one of the staples of Brett Brown's offense over the years has been they're one of the teams that run pick and rolls the fewest, or, or at least yeah. based on synergy, which is, is basically possession and events. Fewer of them come from pick and rolls in almost any team in the league outside of, I think, Golden State. And I think Brett Brown takes pretty, you know, I think he takes pride in that. Like, I think that's how he wants to run his offense. But I think he's he's admitted as much that he's going to make concessions to integrate Markel Fultz and his skill set and his comfort, you know, what he's comfortable with into the playbook and into the offense. So I think we're going to see a, a pretty big adjustment in terms of Markel when he's out on the court. And, you know, maybe that helps arrest some of these problems. But then again, putting a, a 20-year-old, essentially rookie point guard into a lot of pick and rolls probably isn't going to solve your turnover problems day one. Um, but I think Brown's going to ch- make some changes. I don't think turnovers are going to be the main catalyst of those changes, but more Markel Fultz and, and and there. I think, you know, I really think Brown is, he's going to push the pace. He's going to run off of a lot of screens. I think that's what he's always going to want to do. And like I said, I think he's, o- he's going to be okay living with some of the turnover problems that come with that. I think where he's going to look is, you know, Joel, like, let's go to the film room. Let's show you these passes you're missing or these, you know, these reposts that you're missing and try to improve them individually more than change the scheme so much. Yeah, and really that motion offense, who can do that other than Redick on yeah. this team, right? To really open open things up there. Uh, and, and you know, you might say, well, you know, we need to move the ball, like we can't be selfish. Well, uh, or you know, we can't be static. Well, what's a Joel Embiid post up? Right. That's that's what that is too. I mean, that's that that has even less motion probably than uh, you know a pick and roll does. I mean, maybe you, you were going to run cutters off of it, Embiid, perhaps. Um, and I think that's probably what, what getting, yeah. Brown would say is that yeah. we don't run a true. Yeah motion offense anyway because so much of it is based out of Embiid and his one-on-one play uh what do you make of the idea that Simmons should run more pick and roll some were calling for that I know Bob Vulgaris now of the Mavericks was calling for that more uh in the playoffs they didn't really do it at all is the idea that he just can't be effective in pick and roll uh, do you subscribe to that or do you think they could do that a little bit more I mean, I don't think it's going to be the staple of his game, but could they do it more? Yeah, I think they probably could. And I think a lot of it's probably going to come from skinny pick and rolls where they have the defense has a little less time to adjust and to react and to switch back. And maybe yeah, you can skinny pick and roll. Do you want to just elaborate on what that is for, for the listeners? I mean, it's sort of where like the ball handler will start from like a mid post position and dribble off of, yeah. a, off of a big. Yeah. So, some might call that a snug pick and roll. Right. They've actually been running that for Markel a little bit in the yep. preseason. Yep, too. they have. Um, so I think a lot of it will probably 
come from there. You know, I think if you start from the three-point line, I think defenses will figure that out. But I don't think it's ever going to be a, a staple of his game, at least not until he gets that kind of 15-foot pull-up jumper to really at least give defenders a, a thought on how to defend it. Um, like I said, I think probably where Ben's growth is going to be is is a little more in terms of off-ball play and trying to hunt out mismatches than in pick and rolls. I don't think I expect them to make that a staple of his offense. I think if it has enough shooting around it and you do it with Embiid, that it could be very effective, especially if Embiid can improve his jump shot enough to be a, a weapon, you know, in a, a pick and pop, uh, which, you know, ret- early returns on that are dubious. He's two of 18 on threes in, in the preseason. But because I, I think number one, especially with Embiid being like this big beast now, uh, you know, if he's really going to be able to fight hard for post position and, and, you know, you have to put a center on him. If you get, if you switch it and now you've got that guy on Joel Embiid, you know, that could be a, a big time problem. And then if you try to get help on the backside, you've got shooting on the weak side and Simmons, you know, can throw over the top and find that. And if you go under on him, well, then, you know, I think he can just get ahead of steam and he's probably going to be bigger than a lot of the guys guarding him and he can meet that guy at the rim and score over him. And then if you try to lay back with your big at the rim, uh, then, you know, Embiid hopefully can hit that that pick and pop shot. So maybe that's not there yet this season. A lot of it depends on Embiid shooting, but I, I think that particular combination is one I'd like to see them at least try more yeah and i think i think Embiid could get better as a role man too like i think a lot of times when he would you know receive the pass he would take a lot of time to gather himself and bring the yeah. ball down and just he, he, it took him time and and defend defenders could react to that and i think if he could get a little bit better at keeping the ball high going up quickly um i think that would help both he and simmons out as well yeah and i mean i, I was encouraged that one of the things that hanlon talked about because Embiid worked with him as well was you know a lot of his turnovers coming out of these kind of garbage pump fake drives from the top of the key where he just like puts it on the floor once doesn't really go anywhere and then someone digs down and steals it for him that he either needs to like tighten up on his handle or you know have more decisiveness with those drives or just get rid of them you know i thought that was the thing that that uh most annoyed me about Embiid's game and i think led to a lot of turnovers was maybe a little overestimation of his abilities facing the basket um all right so we've been a little bit of a non-traditional path here um Let's talk about how uh, some of the new additions uh, to this team are, are going to fit in. I guess, really, uh, uh, you know, if uh, if any of them aren't injured right now, I guess. Uh <laughs> <laughs> uh Wilson Chandler's out two to three weeks with a hamstring injury uh Zaire Smith probably hard to imagine he'll contribute at all this year um but they did get Mike Muscala uh and uh it looks like uh is it Shamet or Shamet by the way Landry Shamet I say Shamet okay all right the so Danny is uh I think actually that's how he's I mean I I, I I also he said can, he can get the credit there I also said Sarge for years and that was wrong so I'm probably not the right person to ask <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So, so maybe the way to talk about this then is how do you see uh, the backup rotation? You know, it, obviously Reddick's going to be in there if Fultz starts, but uh, outside, if, assuming they go with the rest of the starters that, that they have, how do you see uh, the rest of the rotation shaping up? Yeah, I mean, whoever, whichever one doesn't start of the Reddick, Sharich, um, uh, Fultz trio will probably be the first one off the bench, unless unless Markell really struggles. But I think they're going to give him every opportunity to stay in that top six, and then it it's 
it's, you know, I think when Wilson Chandler comes back, he's probably next among that group. I think Brown really wants his defensive versatility, um, his size, uh, and, you know, his his solid shooting, his occasionally solid shooting. Uh, maybe a little bit inconsistent, but I think he's he's a solid enough shooter. I think they that kind of defensive forward off the bench is something they haven't really had here in the last few years where they've been a relevant basketball team. And I think I think he's going to be used quite a bit when he does come back. Um, and then probably Mike Muscala and Amir Johnson will depend a little bit on the flow of the game and the opponent and who they're going to use. But one of those two will probably be right in the mix there as well. And I think at the beginning of the season, or at least whenever they're back to being healthy, I think that's probably the core of your early game bench rotation. You know, I think one of the big surprises so far has has been Landry Shamit and the way that he has fit in pretty quickly here. And, you know, I think I probably, you know, when, when they drafted him, I didn't have a first round grade on him pretty much at all. And I think the Sixers are probably the right team for him because of, of Ben Simmons and Markel Fultz and them being big guards and the defensive versatility that they have. You know, Shamit, he was a decent pick and roll player at Wichita State, but you're not going to run a lot of pick and roll through him at an NBA level. Didn't really have the size or more specifically the strength to defend and two guards, or at least you were concerned about that, with especially with his athleticism. But the Sixers have flexibility in that they have a 6'10 point guard, and you can now, it's a little easier to hide a guy like 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 Landry. And I think they've let his skills kind of come. Like, I think he has you know, a very clearly an NBA shot. And that's a, when you're talking about, you know, if, if a guy only has one elite NBA skill, if it's shooting, that's a that's a really yeah. good base to start from. And, you can find... And a skill they desperately need on this. Right. Game. And not only can he shoot off the catch, but he's, he's a lot like Redick, a much lesser version of younger version of Reddick, but he he is comfortable coming off of a screen. And I think because he handled the ball so much at Wichita State, now he's also comfortable if they jump a screen, he can put the ball on the floor and at least take one or two dribbles into maybe an easier shot or an easier pass. So I think they can find a role for him earlier than I would have expected. And look, is he going to play 20 minutes a night? No, I'm not saying that at all. But I think there will be games they'll put him in there and he could get hot and help them. So I think he will be in the mix as well, even, even maybe after Jared Bayless comes back from his injury. Um, um, yeah. uh, I mean, ba- Bayless has been oft injured and often out of the rotation. You know, I think he, he played, um, I think he, after they acquired Marco Bellinelli, the next time he played was like game two of the Boston series or something like that. Like he, he was a healthy scratch for a very long time. So I don't think he's going to necessarily push anyone out of the rotation. Yeah. With Bayless out, he's out, he's going to be reevaluated uh, three to four weeks from when he suffered uh, that knee injury in practice in early October. And then, uh, you know, with Chandler out, I mean, really either uh, Shamit or Korkmaz has probably got to play. Uh, yeah. And I, I, th- I think right now uh, Shamit is probably pretty, str- pretty squarely ahead in that fight. How come? I think they trust him off ball or I think they first of all trust his, his ball handling and his ability to at least attack a closeout a little more than they drew. They do Korkmaz. And I think they probably trust him defensively a little bit more as well. Yeah. I mean, neither of those guys are great chicks, but uh, Korkmaz is such a waif uh, that, you know, it's really just hard to see him contributing much defensively. Um, how about with the bigs? They got Mescala. They brought back Amir Johnson for one uh, twelfth, I think, of what he made last year. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> They got Jonah Bowden as well, although you know I'm not sure I expect him to figure at all this season. Is the plan you think for Mescala to play backup center, or may we see him more at the four, where he actually started in Charge's absence uh, on Monday against the Mavericks? Yeah, I think they've they've really been talking about his ability to play the four a lot. Oh no! Um, <laughs> so I think they like Amir at the five as a backup. So I think early season we're probably going to see a lot of Mike Muscala as a backup four, which I am not in love with. 
with. Uh, one of the things that I think Brett Brown is pretty consistent on is he does like having two sort of traditional big men and not traditional in terms of like back to the basket, but in traditional in terms of, you know, you've got your center, you've got your stretch four, And that's, you know, in terms of Dario Saric, Ersan Ilyasova, now Mike Muscala, I think he likes having two bigger bodies in the game. And I think, I think they're going to run. I, I would personally prefer to see Ben Simmons defending a lot of four. You can call him whatever you want offensively, but I like to see him at the four defensively, even Robert Covington at the four. I would go in other directions, Wilson Chandler at the four. But I think we're going to see probably more Mike Muscala at the four than I would optimally like. Yeah, but with Chandler out again, I mean, it's really, they don't, there's no one else to be a backup for uh, on this roster. You know, if you're, if you're playing, if Simmons is the point guard or the three or, or whatever it is that you want to call him in that lineup. And, and that really, you know, that gets me to the point of one of the big weaknesses I see for this team uh, and one that may be rectified in season as it was last year uh, is just, I think that their bench depth could be a major problem, especially with you know, the injury problems that they perpetually seem to have. Uh, but, you know, with Chandler out, I mean, they're really relying on him to be kind of a jack of all trades, backup three, backup four. You know, and he's had a lot of injury issues in his career. You know, we don't know how much he has left. He really struggled offensively last year, although, uh, and, and in a pretty low usage role, kind of similar. You know, he's not really a guy who kind of thrives in a lower usage role. He was, he was someone who would post up every once in a while and be versatile, but, you know, was has never been a great spot up shooter. Uh, so I, I'm concerned about their depth uh, at this point. Uh, uh, although, you know, they still have their room exception. They they might be able to address that later on the buyout or trade markets. Yeah, it's it's so if you look at it in terms of where they were last year, starting the season, they had absolutely no bench depth. I mean, Timotei Luau Cabarro would come in and be like your first guard off the bench way too often for my like for anyone's liking, really. So I think they're in terms of where they were last year, they're much farther ahead in terms of bench depth. If they can get someone like Wilson Chandler back than they were at the start of last year. But you did also have two big, relatively big in terms of, of waiver wire pickups acquisitions after the trade deadline in Bellinelli and in Ilyasova. So I think there is some pretty justifiable concern in terms of their bench depth, and especially in terms of of their wing bench depth and 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 guys who can play the two, three, four. Um, you really only have Wilson Chandler, and that's about it. And uh, you know we'll see if they're able to add anyone either in terms of a trade or that room mid level, or maybe even wait until the buyout market. But it, it is certainly a concern. One name we haven't mentioned yet is T.J. McCollum, and he clearly to me has shown himself to be a rotation level player, uh, and he's always punched above his weight in terms of the on off numbers and that series changed somewhat uh when he came in uh, to be a big part of it uh and then even a bigger part against the celtics but uh also the miami series but and you could say hey you know what just throw him in at backup point guard put markel at the two and now you can kind of move everyone down play a little smaller but you still have plenty of size because you got these guys like simmons and fultz who are pretty big for their position charge but then again the problem becomes that fit uh, offensively you're throwing yet another non-shooter into the mix even if he is an effective player yeah and look i mean mcconnell has been a guy who has really i think endeared himself to the fan base here in philadelphia because of the way he plays the effort he gives defensively you know he'll come in and he'll pressure james harden 30 feet from the basket and you look at the size and the athleticism between those two and it doesn't make any sense intellectually but just watching the passion that he plays with it is it's real easy to root for a guy like that and I think he I think he has come in and given given them a boost especially defensively but like you said how many point guards that almost refuse to shoot can you play in one lineup and part of this might end up being depending on how Markel goes in the early season and whether or not he shows a little bit more willingness 
to shoot and to seek out his shot. And if he does, then then some minutes will open up for TJ to play next to Ben Simmons or next to Markel Fultz. But if he doesn't, if that becomes a question mark, even if it's an inconsistent question mark and you don't know which Markel Fultz you're getting from a a day-to-day basis, then it's going to be tough for McConnell to get the kind of minutes that I think he has probably earned. Um, I think it's a questionable fit. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Like I said, if Markel comes out and he's he's more the guy of the Washington Markel than the maybe the one that we've seen here in the last two preseason games, and maybe this resolves itself. But he is a viable uh, bench player who may struggle to get some minutes here in the early going. Yeah, and you wonder maybe if it, it would be possible. You know, he, he is in the last year of his deal. It does have some value, but again, you know, just so redundant with Simmons, not to mention now with faults uh, as well uh that maybe they could just trade him for an equivalent backup at, at another position and then you know i think he does have value too because his cap hold is going to be the minimum in the off season and so a team that wanted to re-sign him and use cap space and maybe that team could be the sixers but you know again his fit issues with uh, faults uh, and simmons or laurie will be unrestricted this year because they picked up that that option they could have made him restricted this last uh off season had they wanted to uh after his third year this will be his fourth year uh, as a, a undrafted guy so maybe he could be a potential trade candidate uh to try to bring someone else in but you know it remains to be seen he'd be the best point guard in the suns <laughs> at least uh <laughs> you know so uh but uh, they'll have to actually get a gm first uh <laughs> look, looking forward to talking about that well i mean Danny. you could just have sarver do it directly you could he could run the team um <laughs> he, he, he may have already been doing that uh <laughs> but no you're like you're right. I think with with TJ, it makes sense that another team would value him more than the Sixers. And this is kind of I've I've discussed this recently in the context of signing him next summer. Like it makes sense that there's somebody else out there in the NBA that is willing to give him more money and probably more importantly a larger role than the Sixers will have because of of having Ben Simmons and Markel Fultz. And I think you kind of have to come to grips with the fact that even though you might like TJ, even though he's done you know everything right from going from that undrafted point guard out of Arizona to a guy you can actually rely upon, it just the roster can. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Where do, you, where do you go to school? Arizona? Oh, he's, he's clearly getting traded to the Suns now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that that applies to a trade as well, um, where there might be another team out there that will value him and have a bigger role for him than the Sixers will. And that would make sense to explore. I think they're probably going to wait and see, like I said, what happens with Markel, how much they can rely on Markel, how, how, how much Fultz is going to seek out his shot. And like I said, maybe that might open up some minutes for, for McConnell then, but it is, it is a, a tough fit. Um, um, and considering where the Sixers were, the fact that we are, you know, I mean, I spent too many days talking about Casper Ware for my own liking over the years. Like they, they pretty much ignored <laughs> point guards, especially after the TJ McConnell trade, as they really started seeking out stars at any position. And to have too many point guards right now where we have to talk about trading one, it is a it is a welcome departure. All right. Uh, what do you see uh, other than what we've already talked about, obviously, uh, as some of the big strengths uh, for this team? I mean, defensively, they should be. Yeah. They should be a, a top three team in the NBA. Um, I don't have the exact numbers on me. I think they were, what were they, maybe second or third last year? I'd have to double check that. But they were they were real high defensively. And I think they should have a, a strong finish there as well. You know, I think Embiid's good enough yeah. where... Third, third he, last year, by the third, way. Third, okay. The glass, yeah. um, I think Embiid's good enough where he is always going to be a force on that end. And I think he's always going to keep you in the mix of those top teams. You add in the versatile defenders of, you know, Covington and Simmons and now throw in Fultz, who I do think is going to be able to contribute with his physical tools and recently buying in. Like I, I'm actually relatively confident that he will provide value on that end. 
And you yeah. just start off, if they start off with that starting lineup with Fultz, again, 6'4", 6'10", wingspan, Covington, Simmons, and Embiid, there's a lot of flexibility in that, a lot of playmaking, and I think they should be good on that end. You know, I think they're probably missing that one quote-unquote perimeter stopper. I think the way that teams are built nowadays is different than it was 10 years ago, but I do think they need a guy who can more consistently match up with someone like Jason Tatum in the playoffs, someone like Gordon Hayward, well, you so, would presume so to people, be. So people thought Robert Covington was that guy. Uh, he did have a very rough series against the Celtics. Uh, so you do not think he is that guy then? I don't think he's a stopper in that sense, no. I think yeah. his, his, his value comes... His individual defense was awful in that series. Really, it was, I mean, it was worse, bad in that worse than I remember it being. Uh, yeah. I think his his strength comes, first of all, off ball. You know, I think he's a real good playmaker off the ball. I think he makes good rotations off the ball. Um, and I think the combination of those two, the playmaking and being in the right spot is important. I think he can switch and credibly hold his own on a lot of matchups, and I think that's important. But if you're saying one-on-one, clear out, stop that isolation guy, that, that's not really who he is that's not necessarily who he's ever been and again i think that isn't like the value proposition of those you know four aspects has changed a lot recently but i do think the sixers could use a guy who they can credibly put on someone like that i think they hope that zaire smith grows into that i don't expect that to be this season but i think that is part of the game plan with him but i think that is someone they could if you're looking for a weakness defensively and you can go individually and and charge and reddick aren't great defenders but more specifically i think they could use one guy who can really like i said locked down on the perimeter well and the numbers with joel Embiid on the floor defensively just staggering i mean per cleaning the glass which has higher numbers than nba.com but 100.6 uh points per 100 defensively and for reference the jazz although certainly with rudy gobert on the floor they were maybe even better than uh, the sixers were but the jazz led the league with you know 103.5 last year so that's just ridiculous defensively but in the playoffs with al horford at center we saw Embiid struggle again maybe part of that was being in shape there have also been rumbles of a new defensive system uh that is going to help minimize the effect of stretch bigs against Embiid help him stay closer to the rim uh what have you seen in that regard is have you been able to parse out any of what that's going to be and how they might try to deal with those sorts of players a little more yeah I don't think we've really seen a whole lot of that new scheme they have talked about it but they haven't really talked in detail about what that means I'm not sure they've really shown that throughout the course of the preseason so far. I think they've played a, a pretty vanilla offense. Um, you know, I think, I do think, you know, Brown has talked recently about having Muscala and that kind of a stretch big and how that can be beneficial in terms of game planning against, against you know, a stretch center. We'll see. I think a lot of it's just going to come down to, I think, I think they're going to make a, a bigger emphasis and, and place a little more value on, you know, defending your man one-on-one. And I think they were at times reliant on Embiid to provide that help to, to have someone like, like Simmons come over and make a play off the ball and I think they're going to try to ask a lot of these defenders to to focus a little bit more on, on stopping their own man one-on-one. But we'll see. I mean, it's, it's it's like I said, I, I think in terms of personnel, that's probably their one weak point. So um, I don't know. We'll see. But no, we haven't really gotten a great taste of what that new scheme is in terms of their preseason play. Uh, what about weaknesses? We talked about the turnovers, obviously. I mean, we probably hit on all of them. Uh, you know, the, the maybe lack of shooting or at least lack of distribution of shooting. Uh, 
and then uh you know certain kind of a reliance on Embiid defensively maybe a lack of, of versatility the turnovers uh, anything else that comes to mind for you yeah I mean they don't really have a um reliable half court score outside of Embiid you know Simmons yeah. can 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 struggle at times with that like I said I think that's one of the reasons why you look at him off ball and and maybe you can grow him in that regard and get him some easy looks because he doesn't really generate all that much offense for himself in the half court um that is I think probably the biggest one you know you look at people like Reddick and Covington they don't have all that much skill in taking their man off the dribble and even in, in just attacking the closeouts they get as shooters I think Boston really exploited that and they dared them to put it on, on the floor and, and and they really couldn't so I think somebody else to collapse the defense outside of Embiid and people like Covington and Reddick getting a little better at, at at being a threat off the dribble and at least giving defenders something to think about I think those are probably the biggest weaknesses um, and if you bring a guy like now now Shaman off the bench can he do that consistently against against quality defenses I think those are probably the biggest concerns along with obviously health and guys like Embiid specifically Chandler and, and that ilk. All right, let's get into uh, predictions here uh, I will go first uh, I am going to predict the Sixers I think their over under is 54 and a half I'm going to predict them for 53 wins this year uh despite the fact that they had I think a 52 no I think they might have had like a 55 win point differential because what they win last year 52 52 53 something like that yeah yeah it's, it's good that we really prepare for these uh <laughs> I think I think it's 52 I think you're right I think you're right um but you know and obviously they had that huge run at the end of the season and um but you know and maybe more interesting even is where they end up in the playoffs so you know i think 52 but they have a lot of high-end talent this is another team where you know if they make some addition i was saying this about the lakers a couple days ago where you just add a couple more pieces to make everything fit a little bit more logically and i think all of a sudden they look a lot better especially as a regular season team so i'll get your prediction for the playoffs in a second but first you know what do you see their record being this regular season you know i I think 54 and a half is a pretty good number you know i think if Embiid stays healthy you know yeah they they had that i think it was 16 game winning streak at the end of the season but i think they also had you know through early january they had a the hardest the most difficult strength of schedule in the league and they were playing above 500 ball so i think those were generally like i think if you would have just sprinkled those games in throughout the beginning of the season and they won those we probably wouldn't look at it with quite the same um, skeptical eye so i think i think they played you know to that record um i think that was a legitimate 52 wins i think they can be better like i said i think the bench when you compare it to the beginning of the season assuming health will be better i think joel Embiid should be on the court more and, and i'm knocking on wood right now team is a lot more fun to cover when he's he's healthy um so i think he should play more both in terms of of maybe not minutes per game because i think his minutes per game ended up being pretty pretty high for a a, a big man um but certainly more appearances and uh, just expected growth like i expect joel Embiid to be better now is that marginally better or is that jumping into the MB- mvp conversation better that will determine it, but I expect Embiid to be better. I expect Simmons to be at least somewhat better. And there aren't too many people I look at and say he's probably going to take a step back. Like maybe Reddick can take a step back, although I think so far he's looked good and I think he's the kind that will age well. Um, but theoretically, he's 34. He could take a step back. Wilson Chandler, I guess, could take a step back, even though he wasn't on the team last year. Um, but I think I think they'll be better. Now, does that mean they're going to win six more games? No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. And a lot of times you get into this range of 55 to 60 wins, and a lot of it comes down to maybe 
maybe how hard the team's, you know, really playing at the end of the season, how much they're focused on rest and, and being fresh. Um, you know, I think they could end up, uh, I'll say 56. So I think they'll be better, but I could certainly see instances where if they're not fighting for positioning, they could back off the throttle a little bit. Um, you know, it's, it's I, I think they'll be a good team. I think they're the third best team in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, where I would have them uh, as well. And, uh, you know, I think they will be fighting for positioning down the end. I mean, I, I guess I, you could see it where like Boston and Toronto are both so far ahead of them and then nobody else is really close. So they just kind of settle in to three. But I think this is a team, especially a young team, uh, that is really going to crave getting home court advantage. Uh, you know, that was obviously in the Celtics series. You know, if they'd had home court, I think that, that it might have really uh, been a much different series than it was. And that was a closer series, I think, than people remember. And they just kind of failed in the clutch a lot at, at the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I still, you know, you wonder how many games Embiid is going to play you know is he going to play all these back-to-backs still uh you know i know he's in theory healthy for the first time but you know there's always gonna be i think an aspect of needing to baby him and then again you know just the depth is a major concern for me and then also the fact that they're gonna be I think sacrificing some games or at least some minutes to this Fultz experiment. I mean, they're already not playing what uh, their best lineup. But I, and I think actually one kind of off the wall prediction I'm going to have is that I think Marco Fultz will have a negative net rating this season. Huh? I wonder how. Just, see, I think yeah. I think he's going to play enough with Embiid, and I think they're going to try to pair them up enough. Where yeah, I, maybe they'll just defend so well that that's going to be wrong. Right. And, well, I he, like he I still said, had I think, a positive net rating last season, so maybe that's a little too aggressive. Yeah. Well, of course. I'll, a lot of those minutes were also at the end of the year when, as you alluded to, the schedule was not exactly murderer's row. Um, no, I, I think he's probably going to play enough time with Embiid and Simmons where I don't expect that to happen. And if it does, then that's a, a, a pretty big issue. Uh, do I expect yeah. that lineup to be a plus 21 or whatever it was last year? No, not at all. But I don't I don't I don't think they're going to fall. You know, I think like I said, I think he's just going to overlap enough with Embiid and Simmons where I think he'll be OK with that. What do you think? Uh, best case scenario. Well, actually, here, let, let me ask you this first. So how do you see them their season? ending up in the playoffs that's a great question um so i think toronto has a lot of variance to it because of you don't know exactly what Kawhi is going to look like when he comes back and can he stay healthy is he the player he was he was before and that's just a lot of change on a team boston i think is pretty you know i, th- I think everybody's pretty confident boston's gonna be a really really good team so how do you make up enough ground where you can beat that and beat the team that knocked you out and like you said a lot of those games i think three of their losses were games that were decided in the final minutes like i, th- I th- they played Played them closer than a four to one series would normally look, but they're also adding, you know, two all-star level players. So how do you make up that ground? And I think in order to make up that ground, and, and this is a team, the Sixers, who have a publicly stated goal of making the NBA finals. In order to do that, I think Joel Embiid's going to have to be in that conversation for MVP. And he's going to have to play, you know, last year, I think before he, he got hit in the eye socket with a shoulder, he was on pace to play, I think, 70 games. And in the second half of the season, he was pretty much playing every night. Like he wasn't sitting back to backs. I think that's pretty much out of the way. So if he stays healthy and he's playing 70 plus games and he takes that step to where he's in the MVP conversation, that's the only way I really see them being a better team than Boston come playoff time. Like, I think he just has to be such a dominant force that he can over, you know, make up the ground between Boston's depth and the Sixers. And that's a tough task. You know, in order to be a top three player in the NBA, top five player in the NBA, like that's not something that comes around all that often. Like it's, it's a, it's a, yeah. he would Especially have to take a, a pretty big, yeah. 
And so am I saying it's going to happen? No, but I think that's what has to happen in order for the Sixers to be realistically talking about a an NBA Finals run. Or, or Boston just has a, a bad couple games, which can't happen in the playoffs. I think I think NBA playoffs are generally a little more predictable than, than some other sports, especially baseball, which seems to be a coin flip, um, annoyingly so. But I think... Yes. Uh, real annoyingly. So. I, 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 it drives me insane. You have 162 games. <laughs> that's that's a big games. part of why I don't watch baseball anymore. 162 games is great for taking away variance, but seven games is not and one game sure as heck isn't and it drives me mildly insane but anyway i think basketball is a little more predictable boston could have a, a a bad series but i think more realistically i think joel has to like i said work his way into that mvv conversation he has the talent yeah we'll just see if he's on the timeline for that yeah i mean and really he just did not play well enough on either end in that series oh, certainly coming off the uh that orbital fracture you understand why and the concussion um but yeah, I mean, I I have them behind Toronto and Boston and now. Yeah, Kawhi's health is certainly a variable, uh, but I think he's looked pretty decent in the preseason so far. You know, to assuage that a little bit, I, I think it's more a concern with him of does that quad issue recur? Then you know, right. how does he look at full strength necessarily? Because it does seem to be somewhat of a chronic issue. Uh, but it does seem like something too, where especially going into his free agent uh, year, you know, I guess I could cut both ways whether you would try to fight through it and try to prove he's healthy or shut it down again with the big payday potentially there but i, I think with a, a healthy toronto team and a healthy boston th- team one of the big themes that i've focused on a lot has been in the playoffs sometimes your weaknesses matter more than your strengths yep. and i think that this team has some very severe strengths but also some very severe weaknesses and that those were exploited by boston and uh that you know i think toronto and boston are teams that really don't have much in the way of weaknesses at full strength so i that's why i think i like them better in a playoff setting than the Sixers I will also probably have them third in the East in the regular season but I do have them buying out whether they face Toronto or Boston uh in the second round although I think you know again if if Embiid can just break the system you know that's that's the way they get past it I totally agree with you there yeah and I mean it's not only just his individual scoring but he has to be better at reading the defense he has to be better at punishing those rotations and that's really I mean it's great right now that he is so decisive in the post and that he's attacking so consistently now the next step is using that to help his teammates and making sure that you're taking consistently good looks and not turning the ball over like he has. He has, you know, all the potential in the world to be the one thing that other teams just can't match up for. And I think that's going to be important. But like you said, he has to make use of that in the playoffs. And I think last playoffs were tough because he had that downtime, because he had that mask. You know, I think it, he he has said that he didn't have a great, he couldn't, his vision out of that mask wasn't perfect. And I think that was, you know, I think everything was just a step slow for him for those reasons. And he didn't play well. And I think Boston played him extremely well. I think they'll play him well again, should they meet. And he's got to be at the top of his game. And not only where he was last year, but like I said, he's, he's really got to take another step in terms of, of, of setting up his teammates all right we've cut you way too long here but real quickly best case scenario what do you what do you see it as both wins and uh you know final result this season i mean the best case scenario is is up there with just about anyone outside of golden state and houston like they could win 60 games and make the finals i it, it's if Embiid's and a lot of it's going to rest on Embiid, but that's certainly in play i don't know how likely but that is the best yeah. case scenario uh yeah i would say 58 and you know again making the nba finals and probably losing but obviously if you get there you always have a, a puncher's chance 
sense. And, and, you know, we'll see what that, what, you know, you, you could easily see Golden State and Houston not being as good as they were last year. And, you know, if, then if the Sixers team makes it past Boston and Toronto and they're that good, you know, you, maybe you could even see them winning the, the finals. Although, again, uh, what percentage chance of that? Uh, maybe a little lower. Uh, how about a worst case scenario for these guys? You know, assuming we're not assuming that Joel Embiid misses, you know, three quarters of the season, but, you know, realistic amount of missed games for, for some of these guys. So if Embiid's healthy for let's say 60 games yeah i don't i don't see them winning under 45 and that would be like yeah everything goes wrong like Embiid misses you know 22 games simmons misses time reddick misses time like i think they have enough depth in their first five to six where they should be able to withstand one injury and still play solid basketball um so i don't there's almost no scenario if you're going to take out the Embiid misses the entire year there's no real yeah. scenario i think where they approach 500 uh, and maybe that might be a little optimistic but i do think they have enough enough depth with simmons and other high level players where they should be able to stay competitive and to be honest the east outside of boston and toronto you know you can throw in milwaukee depending on 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 what they do there with their new systems but the depth in the east isn't great and you lost cleveland obviously um so there are some winnable gimme games that will be mixed in there so if Embiid's relatively healthy i think you know if they miss the playoffs it would be a a a huge uh story oh absolutely yeah I, i i see it same thing i i had 46 written down for that as well well thanks again this was awesome uh where can everyone keep up with your work before we go here i mean easiest way is on twitter at Derek bonner nba uh, but also theathletic.com slash philly was there a, a Derek Bodner just with no NBA on it? <laughs> there, on I mean, it, that's decide? actually that's actually my own. Um, I have two accounts, oh, yeah. one of them for non-basketball stuff and one of them for basketball. Yep. Oh, man, I need to follow that immediately. <laughs> it's almost yeah, never you know, used. We, almost never used. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a little disappointed we didn't hear. Like, it's not like right after a game or something. Or like, we're not, you're not reacting to news. I was hoping we would get some solid, like, you know, Bodner East Coast swearing i told you that before the show maybe maybe i poisoned the well by saying that but if you do want to hear him swear a little bit more his uh sixers beat podcast is awesome probably the best way audio way to keep up with uh the goings on uh with the sixers so so that's fantastic too and uh thanks again for coming on man this is great thank you reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.